Hello, and welcome to the Crime Shark Podcast. I'm your host, Baby Shark. This is the third episode of the Crime Shark Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Today we're going to talk about the case of Chandra Levy. Chandra Levy was born in Cleveland, Ohio on April 14, 1977 to Robert and Susan Levy. Eventually, the family moves to Modesto, California. There, Chandra attends Grace M. Davis High School. The Levies were members of the congregation Beth Shalom, which is described as a conservative Jewish synagogue. Chandra attended San Francisco State University, where she majored in journalism. She went on to the University of Southern California to earn a master's degree in public administration. For her last semester, Chandra moved to Washington, D.C. to work as a paid intern with the Federal Bureau of Prisons, BOP for short. According to their website, the agency was established in 1930 to, quote, provide more progressive and humane care for federal inmates, to professionalize the prison service, and to ensure consistent and centralized administration of federal prisons, end quote. It was October 2000 when her internship started at the Bureau's headquarters in D.C. She worked for the organization's Public Affairs Division under Dan Doon, a Bureau spokesperson. Most of what Chandra worked on was the media inquiries regarding the upcoming execution of Timothy McVeigh, one of the men responsible for the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building. The 24th anniversary of the bombing just recently passed. McVeigh actually grew up in Pendleton, New York, which is not far from where I live today. Chandra was still working for the Bureau in April 2001, but her academic eligibility had actually expired in December 2000, so her internship was terminated, and Levy was going to return to California to graduate in May. But Levy would never make it to graduation. She would never even make it back to California. May 1st, 2001 was the last time anyone would see Chandra Levy. On May 6th, her parents contacted the Metropolitan Police Department in the District of Columbia for assistance as it had been five days since they last spoke with their daughter, and they were unable to get in touch with her. Her parents had grown very concerned. It was very unlike Chandra to not answer or return their calls. To assist, police made calls to local hospitals in case she had been admitted. They also went to Chandra's apartment, but there was no indication of foul play. It was on May 7th that Robert, Chandra's father, told police that he believed his daughter had been having an affair with a U.S. congressman. On May 8th, he told police that he believed that congressman was Gary Condit, a U.S. representative for the Levy's home state of California. So Condit wasn't just any congressman that Chandra had met in D.C. He was the congressman for her district in California. Police obtained a search warrant for her apartment on May 10th. There, they found Chandra's partially packed suitcase, laptop, an answering machine full of messages from relatives and two messages from Gary Condit. 
also found was Chandra's purse with her ID, credit cards, and cell phone. The apartment complex's surveillance video feed had already been recycled, so there wasn't any footage from the day she went missing. Most security cameras are set up this way. Instead of recording endless video, it's recycled after a number of days and the older video is lost. An untrained police sergeant was attempting to examine the laptop but corrupted the internet search data. It took computer experts a month to be able to reconstruct the data to find what Chandra's last search history had been before she went missing. Now, I understand that computers have come a long way since 2000, and who knows what year her laptop was, but what idiot manages to crash her computer and corrupt the search data so bad that it took a month to recover? I mean, did he just, like, dump a soda on it and was like, oops? It just, that that's always hasn't made sense to me, how you lose that information and to an extent that it takes so long to recover it. From the recovered data, they could see that Chandra had looked up Southwest Airlines, a weather report from the Washington Post, Amtrak, Baskin-Robbins, and even Condit. Her last search was at 12.59 on May 1st. She had searched for a province in France. Other internet activity indicated that she had browsed the Washington Post Entertainment Guide for Rock Creek Park and had even viewed a map of the park. It was theorized that maybe she'd been going to the park to meet someone. On July 25th, 2001, no, this is almost two months since Chandra had been missing. Police searched the park, focusing on Glover Road, but found nothing. Even after a second attempt to search the park, they found nothing. Her parents were beside themselves. Family and friends held vigils. There were news conferences. They all just wanted to bring Chandra home. The American news media just ate it up at the idea that Chandra had been having an affair with Gary Condit. Condit had denied the affair and still continues to even this day deny the affair or at least skirt around questions related to it. Condit spoke with law enforcement July 7, 2001. On July 10th, investigators searched Levy's apartment again. Flight attendant Anne-Marie Smith was also interviewed by law enforcement. She had been having an affair with Condit. Allegedly, Condit told Smith not to speak to the FBI about his personal life. Now, to me, that sounds like someone with something to hide. Maybe he's just trying to hide his affairs, his possible affairs with multiple women. After all, Condit was a married man and a politician who had a reputation to uphold but apparently upholding his reputation is only an afterthought to his infidelities. The FBI begins to investigate Condit for possible obstruction of justice. Now here's a pro tip. If someone is telling you not to talk to the FBI, you should probably talk to the FBI. There's a media frenzy surrounding this case. After all, who doesn't love a drama full of politics, affairs, and possible murder? Well, Gary Conant doesn't love those kinds of dramas. 
at least not when they're about his life. Out of anger and frustration for the unwanted media attention, Condit refuses to take a polygraph. Which, I mean, I don't really trust polygraphs anyway, so I don't necessarily blame him there. But his private legal counsel stated that he did take and pass a polygraph that was administered by a private company they hired. Which just seems weird to me. If you're not going to take a polygraph administered by law enforcement, why pay someone else to take one? Was it a test to see if he could actually pass? Was it just to prove a point? If anything, it just seems more suspicious. On August 23rd, ABC News reporter Connie Chung does an interview with Condon, and this was for their Primetime Thursday, which, as you can guess, aired on Thursday nights during primetime. Chung ends up asking Condit some tough questions, and she isn't shy about it, for as much as Condit skirted around issues and questions surrounding the Levy case, Chung goes right for the kill shot, asking him if he was involved. And then in September of 2001, something happened that would change America forever. Two planes were hijacked and flown into the Twin Towers. Thousands of people lost their lives. And all of a sudden, no one was talking about the missing intern anymore. Chandra's case had left the limelight. And the case kind of starts to go cold. And then on May 22nd, 2002, a man is walking his dog in a park. He's not just walking his dog in any park. He's walking his dog in Rock Creek Park. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's the park that Chandra had searched for on the internet the day she'd gone missing. It's the park that investigators believe she may have gone to to meet someone. It's the park law enforcement searched twice, but found nothing. But on May 22nd, that man walking his dog, he found something. Skeletal remains. The bones and personal items were scattered but not buried. They were located in a forest area of the park along a steep incline. The clothing found with the bones were an aero sports bra, Victoria's Secret panties, pro spirit black leggings, which were inside out and each leg was knotted, and Reebok tennis shoes. Also located was a small gray t-shirt with red lettering that said, Property of USC Athletics. Dental records would confirm that the remains were those of Chandra Levy. So why had police not found the body when they conducted their initial search of the park? Well, Rock Creek Park is huge. And, I mean, if you're from central New York like I am, it's huge. Thank you, Billy Fusillo. I will never escape your commercials. The park is over 2,000 acres and about three square miles. Police had told people to search 100 yards of every road and trail, but instead... Because of miscommunication, they only searched 100 yards of every road. The frustrating part about this is had they searched the park correctly, or more extensively, 
They may have been able to find Chandra's body the year before. And had they discovered it then, there would have possibly been more evidence and a better understanding of the events that took place resulting in her death. There could have been DNA from the murderer. There could have been a clear indication of how she died. There's a lot of forensic evidence that is lost due to the time that her body sat there undiscovered. An initial autopsy was performed, which provided sufficient evidence to the possibilities of homicide. Jonathan Arden, a DC medical examiner, declared on May 28th that Chandra's death was in fact a homicide. There was damage to her hyoid bone, which suggested possible strangulation but because of the time that had passed between when she was killed and when her remains were found, it was very hard for them to make a conclusive determination of how she was murdered. Now the Levy case changes from a missing persons case to a murder investigation. A year had passed since she was murdered. Now police had the daunting task of trying to figure out who was responsible. Specialized criminologists Kim Rosmo starts to take a look at Chandra's case, specifically where Chandra's remains were found. Rosmo also looks at other criminal activity that happened in the park. He begins to ask questions like, were attacks in the park common? And although attacks of this nature seemed rare, there had been two cases of female joggers who were attacked in Rock Creek Park shortly after Chandra's disappearance. One of the women attacked was Haley Schilling. She recognized eerie similarities between where she was attacked and where Chandra's remains had been found. Schilling had been jogging in the park when she noticed a Hispanic man, and then she noticed he was following her. Once he attacked her, Haley began to put up a fight for her life. But her attacker didn't know was that she had self-defense training. Schilling put her fingers into the mouth of her attacker and dug her fingernails into his soft palate. He instantly loosened his grip, and Schilling was able to get away. She goes to the police right away to report the attack. Almost a month and a half later, another woman is attacked, Christy Wygand. Christy was jogging with her fiancé. He pulled ahead of her as they were jogging, eventually disappearing from view. She too noticed a Hispanic man following her, and he was getting closer. Since Wygan's fiancé was so far ahead and now out of view, Christy was basically alone. Wygan is attacked from behind, and they fall down into a ravine. Her attacker pulls a knife on her. A struggle ensues. She's fighting for her life. But Wygand is able to get away. She reports the attack immediately. She's able to provide a really good description of her attacker, and park police are able to locate her attacker, crouched in the bushes, hiding. He is brought in for questioning. The man brought in for questioning was Ingmar Guandique. Guandique was an El Salvadorian man who had come to the United States illegally. Guandique entered the U.S. by first traveling through Mexico 
and then swimming across the Rio Grande into Texas. First he makes his way to Houston, and then to Washington, D.C. Guandique came to the U.S. to get a job, to make money to send back to his impoverished family in El Salvador. He starts working as a day laborer, moving from job to job. Now, America is supposed to be the land of opportunity, but there weren't many opportunities for Ingmar. He resorts to drinking and drugs, and his behavior begins to worsen. Ingmar's girlfriend, whom he punched and hit in the face, described him as volatile. He'd punched holes into the apartment wall. One time, he even bit his girlfriend above her breast. He was not a nice dude. He was not a good person. Guandique is charged in July of 2001. He pleaded guilty to attempted robbery. After noting the similarities between the attack on the women in Rock Creek Park, investigators begin to ask, Could Guandique have killed Chandra Levy? He lived not far from the park. The attack and the attacks on the women in the park stopped after he was arrested. It was May 23, 2002, when Schilling did an interview and mentioned Guandique's name publicly. She didn't understand why she had never been interviewed about Guandique and his possible involvement in Chandra's disappearance and murder. But police downplayed Guandique as a suspect and accused the press of making a big deal out of things. Police and press never really go well together. We see often cases where the media is putting a lot of pressure on law enforcement to get cases solved. And this actually really hurts investigations. It also hurts the innocent people who are initial suspects but are actually innocent. Look at the recent Molly Tibbetts case and the farmer that was a person of interest. The whole world was hating him until they found her actual killer who led them to her body. But unbeknownst to the public was that Guandique was already on the police's radar. A jailhouse snitch had come forward August 26 of 2001 saying that Ingmar admitted to killing Chandra. But that story gets a little weird. The informant says that Guandique told him that Khan paid him to do it, $25,000. And police begin to question whether or not the informant was telling the truth. Because now it really sounded like something out of a TV show or a movie. A congressman paying for someone to be killed? In February of 2002, the FBI administers a polygraph. Guandique's polygraph results are inconclusive and later deemed not deceptive. These results eliminate him as a suspect. On February 8th, Guandique is sentenced for his attacks on Schilling and Wygan. Both women spoke how they didn't feel the attacks were simply a robbery. After all, he had left their personal belongings behind. They each stated that they felt had he been given the opportunity, they were convinced he would do it again. Guandique is sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. So the case goes cold. In 2008, the Washington Post 
released a series of articles about the Levy case, highlighting the police's failure to draw connections to Guandique and Chandra's murder. It wasn't good press for the police. They highlighted their mistakes, you know, their failure to search the park correctly, their miscommunication, kind of all the places where they dropped the ball. In September of 2008, police searched Guandique's cell and find that he has a picture of Chandra that has been cut from a magazine. It's March of 2009 when an arrest warrant is issued for Guandique. He's returned to D.C. Department of Corrections and charged with Levy's murder. A grand jury indicted Guandique on six counts. Kidnapping. First-degree murder committed during a kidnapping. Attempted first-degree sexual abuse. First-degree murder committed during a sexual offense, attempted robbery, and first-degree murder committed during a robbery. Ingmar Guandique pleads not guilty. The trial lasted for about a month. Both previous victims, Schilling and Wigand, testified. And in an interesting turn of events, Gary Conant is called to testify. The defense asked Condit if he had an intimate relationship with Chandra. Condit replied, quote, I have already stated I am not going to respond to those questions. Unquote. I mean, I guess you have the right to plead the fifth, but even in court, Condit wasn't really going to talk about his relationship with Chandra. And it, it doesn't look good for him. It doesn't really help the case. Armando Morales, one of Guandique's cellmates, testified that Guandique confided in him that he killed Levy, but he did not rape her. The prosecution drops the charges of sexual assault and first-degree murder committed during a sexual offense. Because of the statute of limitations had passed, the charges of kidnapping and attempted robbery were also dropped. That seems really weird to me that there's a statute of limitations on kidnapping, but there are definitely flaws in our legal system. The jury begins deliberations on November 17, 2010. On November 22, 2010, the jury finds Guandique guilty of the remaining charges. First-degree murder committed during kidnapping and first-degree murder committed during a robbery. So even though they dropped the charges of kidnapping and robbery, they still keep the murder under special circumstances charges. Guandique's defense tries to petition for a retrial, arguing that the verdict had been improperly obtained, believing that the prosecution had appealed to the jury's emotions, and that there was one juror who had not even taken notes therefore breaching the judge's instruction not to be influenced by other jurors' notes. The judge denies a motion for retrial. Guandique is sentenced to 60 years in federal prison. In 2015, it's discovered that Armando Morales, the prosecution's star witness, had perjured himself on the stand. The prosecution had failed to disclose that Morales had been a jailhouse informant with a reputation of being untrustworthy. Morales denied being an informant, 
A retrial date is set. Now, as if this case can't get any crazier, it does. A House of Cards extra, Babs Prowler, is staying in Maryland when she meets a man who identifies himself as Phoenix. Which means, dude, you couldn't have picked a better nickname. You gotta be Phoenix. That's just weird. Eventually, this man reveals that he's actually Armando Morales, and he's in Maryland for the upcoming Guandique retrial. Babs begins to sort of fear Morales. She knew he'd spent about 20 years in prison, and so she kind of begins to believe he's a dangerous man. So she begins to record their conversations. She gets the impression that maybe Morales isn't telling the whole truth, but every time she pushed him for more information on Guandique, he says, don't go there. Prowler had said that she had recorded a conversation in which Morales admitted he made the whole thing up. However, of the recordings that were turned over, none of them had evidence of this claim. But either way, Morales' credibility was ruined. Ultimately, the prosecution announced that they wished not to go to retrial and instead were seeking to deport Guandique. In 2017, Guandique was finally deported back to El Salvador. Even though the murder charges were dropped, Guandique was still a convicted felon for his attacks on the other two women. Matthew Monroe of ICE said in a statement, Mr. Guandique unlawfully entered the United States and once here continued to violate U.S. laws by assaulting innocent victims. As a result of his actions, he has been removed to his home country of El Salvador. Even when Guandique was in prison, he wasn't making things better for himself. He joined the MS-13 gang, an especially heinous gang that was created in Los Angeles to protect Salvadorian immigrants. It's a gang that has a bad reputation. So now, with no one being held responsible for Chandra's murder, what happens? Well, even when people are released in murder cases, the case remains closed. An arrest has been made, the case went to trial, and Guandique was convicted. Even though he was eventually released, it's still kind of considered a closed case. I was unable to find information on if the Levy murder investigation was ever formally reopened. This also technically doesn't mean it's a cold case, because cold cases are still open even if they're not being actively investigated. So I don't really know what that means for this case. So how has this played out for other characters? Well, Gary Condit lost his bid for re-election in 2002, ending his political career. He moved to Arizona and opened two Baskin-Robbins franchises, but they have since closed. I find it interesting he chose Baskin-Robbins because that was one of the last things Chandra had searched on her computer the day she went missing. But I mean, everyone loves ice cream, right? I don't think I've ever even been to a Baskin-Robbins, 
Maybe it's just a big deal in the states that they're from. Condit did an interview in 2016 with Dr. Phil, but he still skirted around questions about Chandra Levy. Even when Dr. Phil asked, Why is it that you will not answer publicly whether or not you had a sexual relationship with Chandra Levy? Condit replies to Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil, I haven't answered that publicly for 15 years, and I'm not going to change my position or my view on that today, or probably any time in the future. So although all these different news outlets are talking about Condit finally breaking his silence, he still really isn't saying anything. The fact of the matter is, he was only on Dr. Phil to promote his book co-authored with Brenton Peace. The book's title is Actual Malice, a True Crime Political Thriller. I'm tempted to read it, but I have the feeling there isn't much I would learn, as Condon still refuses to really talk about his relationship with Chandra, so it's still going to be a case shrouded in mystery. I hope one day that the Levy family will get answers as to who murdered their daughter. Chandra was a person with immense potential. I believe she probably would have gone on to work for the FBI. Who knows what she would have done. It's not fair that her life was taken from her. It's not fair that she was taken from her family. And it's not fair that no one is being held responsible for her murder. Thank you for tuning in to episode 3 of the Crying Shark Podcast. In case you didn't know, the podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, which took me multiple times to submit, but I finally figured out why it was being rejected, and they finally approved it, so you can subscribe there, you can review or rate or whatever people are always asking everybody to do for podcasts, and the podcast is also available on Stitcher. I'm still working on getting it up on other places, trying to figure out a way if I have to just manually upload it to all these different podcatchers or if there's another way that it can be done, I'm working on it. So hopefully I can figure that out. I'd like to give a shout out to the Mugly Truth Podcast. The two lifelong friends who just kind of record the ramblings over coffee. And they're pretty hilarious. And they describe themselves as a true crime palate cleanser. And I think that's a perfect way to describe it. You know, sometimes you just need a break from true crime. It's too much. I certainly feel that way. It's nice to kind of take a break and just listen to something that's not about murder. Anyway, be sure to give their podcast a listen. They're awesome. I'm really bad at ending my episodes. I guess I don't really know how. That's why these part of my episodes are always so awkward. But... Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll catch you next time, whenever that's going to be, because I haven't figured out my next episode yet. But hopefully, within the next two weeks, I'll figure it out, and I'll have it recorded. See ya!